0: What's up, Heard That Nation? Y'all have asked, and you've asked, and you've asked, and it's finally open. The Heard That With Marisa online store at HeardThatWithMarisa.com. I got the merch. Finally happened. Swaggy tees, amazing hats, other kinds of different merchandise that I got on there. Check it out today. Thank you for supporting your girl. Uh, Fill up a shopping bag with all kinds of stuff. Give away as gifts or keep it for yourself. All kinds of amazing swag and merchandise. Check it out today. Heard that with Marisa.com. I appreciate your support. I absolutely love doing volunteer service. I have met the most amazing people and some extraordinary kids as well. The cool thing that kids will always ask for when I am volunteering is books. If we have books available for them to take home because of their passion and love for reading. There's an amazing author out there by the name of Trevor Romain who has such cool books for kids that are fun and awesome with simple stories that kids can relate to and parents as well. The Trevor Romain Company has a diverse collection of social and emotional learning resources to help children and their families become healthier, happier, and more confident. All heard that, listeners. If you go on TrevorRomain.com today... You get an exclusive 15% off your complete order by using the code heardthat 5 at trevorromaine.com. TrevorRomaine, no E at the end of romaine.com today. What's up, Heard That Nation? Listening in the United States and around the world, you are listening now to the Heard That with Marisa Tigney podcast. If you are watching on YouTube, hit that share and subscribe button. You definitely want to make sure that you are tuned in with every episode that drops here on YouTube. I am so honored and so thrilled to have this guest on with me today. He is a former NFL player, an author, a motivational speaker, a person that just keeps it 100%. Uh, he, If you got sons, if you are a teacher, if you are an administrator, if you are a parent, you definitely want to tune in to uh, what he is going to share today on the podcast. I am so honored and thrilled to introduce to you Jay Barnett. Welcome right. to the Heard That podcast, sir. How are you?
2: I am doing well. I am doing well. Oh, you forgot therapist too. So. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Either and you know what? We
0: also forgot actor. I forgot to say yeah, actor yeah. <laughs> on there because I mean, listen, you are a jack of, of many, uh, many trades, and. You're so good at all of them. And I just want you to know from this person that's speaking me, what you are doing out there is absolutely phenomenal. You're, you're, how you motivate and you educate and you teach, not just young men that you are, which we will talk about momentarily, but I have watched on your IG so many of the things that you're doing and one that comes to my mind and I put this in my notes to talk about later, but I wanna talk about it now because it just stands out to me. There was a post you put on your Instagram on September 13th and it was a room full of young men that you were talking about, You know, when things and situations knock you down, stand up and keep standing. And for me, what I took from that is there was, there's been so many uh, people, especially during this difficult year that we just got, uh, we we'll still, technically we're still in it, 2020 being a difficult year, but before 2020, um, there has been uh, many young people, young men, uh, that have gone through similar situations of life knocking them down, of people knocking them down, of, of not getting that, um, motivational morale uh that that positive affirmation of their life being spoken over to them because they obtain so much of the pressures and keep them inside of them and wait for that affirmation from their guardian from their father Uh, and when i had mentioned to you we talked before coming on the podcast of uh let people know that you were going to be on here so many people were wondering when is this episode going to drop because They are ecstatic and excited and uh, wanting to know, because many of them that did reach out to me are guardians or teachers or um, administrators of mostly young men, mostly young uh, black men. Um, Share a little bit of your background of you growing up. And uh, like I said, on the top of the show, you are a former NFL player. So how did you, you know, growing up and falling in love with sports and uh, knowing that football was your gift, and it take me through Jay Barnett as a young person, uh, growing up in your household, and how you had yourself as it as a teenager back then, as a young person back then, gone through so much uh, different adversities growing up.
2: Oh man, we got time. We got time. Uh, <laughs> you got we
0: got time because I know yeah. you gonna you gonna drop some gems on this. So <laughs> go for it, sir. <laughs>
2: So let's see. I, I I grew up in Mississippi and um, in the Delta, actually uh, about an hour uh, from Memphis and by uh, about an hour and some change from Greenville. So I grew up in these very uh, different dynamics where I spent a lot of time in Memphis
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I spent a lot of time uh, in, in the rural South because my grandmother lived in the country. And so my grandfather was a sharecropper. So I grew up around uh, seven uncles, uh, including my, my dad, you know, it's, it's eight boys in their uh, family system. And uh, I, my, my grandparents are very religious, you know, a Baptist upbringing. My grandfather was a deacon. And I later, as I grew into understanding more about my family system, my father was a quartet singer at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I played drums. the group so I started playing drums when I was four so that continued on and then my father became a minister and after he became a minister he became a pastor of two churches so there was a lot of changes that were uh, that were happening in our families and I was a kid who was very uh, very advanced I knew God was calling me I got saved early in church I got involved in church early Mm -hmm. I went to Bible Bible camp when I was like nine years old experienced uh the holy spirit you know came back a changed kid speaking in tongues the whole nine uh, the
0: whole experience I'm so, raising my hand because I can relate yes
2: so so that was my that was my journey uh, but what many people don't know and we're still actually looking for footage <laughs> so we're, we're I'm on my dad because he has so much of my memorabilia from football and from everywhere mm-hmm. the man just collects my stuff so i've been trying to get it so i was called to preach at nine years old mm-hmm. um and they did this huge article on me as this kid preacher my first sermon was the 23rd psalm the lord is my shepherd and i spoke about 200 people in the church and my parents did not understand <laughs> just what I was going through spiritually, Mm -hmm. but they jumped on board. And I never forget my father telling me that I was never going to be like other kids. Mm -hmm. And I remember him telling me that I was different um, because I was having dreams, I was having visions, and I was telling them things that I saw about people. And these things were coming to pass. So they started taking me to like their friends who were kind of upper echelon in ministry. Like, hey, you know, this is going on with our son. Can you tell us what's going on? And it wasn't until I understood, I spoke at a conference, I mean, at a youth day conference when I was 10 years old uh, in Lane Avenue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a very historical black church.
0: Wow, at 10?
2: At 10. Wow. And after this course, the full circle moment was there was a couple and my mother and them, we we laugh about it today, a couple who said, we want to talk to your son to see if he can help our marriage. (laughs) So so I'm 10 years old, and they was like, okay. So they come into the office and they begin to talk. And here I am, Marissa, counseling people, a couple at 10 years old, not knowing. This was foreshadowing what was to come.
0: Yeah,
2: You know, and so fast forward a little bit, and, and these are things that I I, I vivid vividly memor, uh you know memorize about my journey as a teenager. But then here comes a shakeup where my parents get a divorce.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I knew what was happening with my parents, like I knew about the infidelity. I saw so much with my father in mm-hmm. the church, out of church, and those things begin to shake my faith. And when my dad came in the room one night and says, Jay, Uh, can you get the girls together Uh, we need to talk to you guys me and your mom and get under divorce and for the first time in my life everything that I thought about my family uh, you know all of a sudden was falling apart because Hmm. I think we don't realize that kids paint pictures as well you know when you're a kid you have this imagination that your family those little
0: triggers that happen
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I remember uh, my sister and I watching a um, soap opera because my grandmother was big and into those. And, you know, we remember watching kids crying when their parents were divorced on an episode. And we, and I can remember, and we talk about it today as grown up, how we would say that would never happen to our family. And then it did. And in the midst of all of that, I found myself into this space that I've never known about because my father began leaving before he left.
3: Hmm. And I want
2: to stay right there. He began leaving emotionally before he physically left. Sometimes people will begin to withdraw emotionally before they begin to disconnect and withdraw themselves physically. And this is a thing that we don't realize that's so important when rearing children that you just can't be in the house. You have to be emotionally connected in the house because the emotional development of the child is contingent upon not just your presence, but your participation. So okay. oftentimes parents think, well, I'm there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, what does that mean? Because my father was there, but he was not there in His mind, his Mm -hmm. spirit, and let me tell you something, parents, kids can identify quicker than anything. And I identify it because I walked in on my mother crying one night and I said, mom, what's wrong? And she didn't want to tell me because she was always trying to protect us, but I said, mom, I know what's going on. And I asked my mother, why are you staying? I said, why are you putting up with this? Mm -hmm. And she says, Jay, where am I going to go with my three kids, with with you and your sisters?" And I said, mom, God will take care of us. That's when I saw something stand up in me. But on the other side of it, there was also something that was neglected because when my father divorced my mother, he divorced us. Mm -hmm. So I now no longer had this model because I wanted to be like my dad. Yeah, he's an awesome preacher, uh, uh, a heck of a football player. And he just had this charisma that everyone wanted to hear Reverend Barnett. And so it was like, man, that's what I wanted. But then I found myself despising everything about him because of how he treated my mother. So this drove me into a deep depression as a kid. And I began cutting on myself. And I began, I went from an A student to fell into A grade. And I can tell you exactly why. I did it because I wanted his attention. I would purposely get kicked out of class just so they can call him and for for, for me to see that he actually cared.
0: You wanted his okay. attention or you wanted his validation?
2: I wanted his attention at that time mm, because he, okay. the, 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 the validation was not, uh, I was not in a position to understand what would the validation bring. Wow. So the attention was gonna bring me uh, this, this sense of uh, belonging that I care about my son, that I'm gonna go up to the school and check on him. I'm not just gonna call and say, hey, call his mama. I'm gonna step up and say, hey, I'm going to come up and have a conversation with him so I was in the house when my my parents uh stopped sleeping in the same room because my father took over my bedroom and one day I came home in the eighth grade and I fought him because I said man why don't you just leave what's the point of you taking over my room your mama not sleeping but we still going to church every day all of these things are happening and of course you know You know, he's a grown man and he kind of put me in my place. We got this pushing and shoving, but there was so much anger and pain because he was more focused about his next rather than his children. And this is why it's so important when parents are going through Mm -hmm. these divorces and through these separations, that they are mindful that this is not just about what's next for you and what you're looking to do, because sometimes it's easy to get caught up that I want to be happy. And we begin to neglect the children who are the byproduct of your decision when you came together as a couple. And the cutting and all of these things begin to plague me because I just wanted somebody to ask Jay, little Jay, are you okay? Because I was a feeling husband for my mother and I became a surrogate father to my sister at 13. So here I am guiding them because everybody said, hey, you got to be it's time. You got to be the man of the house. I got seven uncles.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, seven uncles, two cousins who was playing in the NFL at the same time. And not one person reached out and said, nephew, I got you. So fast forward to the work that I do mm-hmm. and the passion that I have about young men is always in memory of my 13 year old self. Because I would never forget the look that I had in my eyes the day my teacher said, Jay, what's going on? Why are you acting out? Why are you carrying out? I remember telling her, I don't care. I said, my parents get a divorce, so I don't really care about school. You know, I remember getting caught cheating on a test. They kicked me out of the room. They said, Jay, we'll give you another chance. I went in the trash can, grabbed a cheat sheet and started cheating again. I was purposely intentionally doing things because I just wanted the attention for somebody to care enough to say, how do you feel about the divorce? And everyone gave care to my sisters, but no one gave care to me. But how many young Black males have been overlooked because yeah. we have placed them in positions to, uh, to, to play the role of a father or a male figure? And now these boys have become men who have not felt heard ever in their life. Mm -hmm. And now they're connected to a woman who said, talk to me. There's no way possible. Mm -hmm. So in all of that, football became my safe space. My mom moved us from Mississippi to Texas. And I often shared that the little boy that got in the U-Haul truck and left Mississippi was not the same kid who got out of the truck when we got to Texas, because I now had to create a maladaptive persona that I'm now mad at the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because of the pain and anger that I'm having to endure because I'm asking my father why are you divorcing my mom, why are you cheat on my mom? Why are you do this? Stay in the child place ain't none of your business, all those different things. So when I liked football in seven or eighth grade, but I, you know, it was all right. I was playing it because my dad and my uncle and cousin them was playing. Right. But when I got to Texas, football became a safe space for me. Mm-hmm. It became a way that I was able to cope with my anger because I can run over a guy. I can hit him. I can punish him. I can do whatever I want and I wasn't going to get in any trouble. And I was very aware of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where football became my crutch, as I like to call it. Okay. It was how I was able to navigate through so much. I was a very angry child. My mom remarried. She remarried a guy who we later found out who just got out of prison. <laughs> so this, wow. my story is powerful dude becomes very physically abusive to me because i was able to identify with who he was i told uh-huh. my mother i said i don't like this guy i said about him doesn't sit right and this guy was so manipulating such a narcissist and such a and i'm not a person who throw around words like that even as a clinician but he was just such a manipulator. So they, they so I come home one day and I'm having trouble in school. He starts yelling at me and and telling me that you know I need to get these demons out of me. So they tried mm. to do this exorcist. True story. So they try to perform an Wow! What an
0: exorcism? Are you serious? So
2: so you know basically oh. basically like you know they're praying over me and you know Jay's got demons. So he turns up, the entire family against me. So I went in the room and I tried to jump out of the window because I was suicidal. And so at night he would come in the room and beat on me and tell me, I'm going to make a man out of you one way or the other. So I talk about this story in my book, Hello King. So I I plotted to kill him and he would sleep on the couch and he was resting kind of like with his arms across his chest. Mm -hmm. I walked up to him I had this trophy that had a sharp edge on it and I was going to stab him in the chest and kill him and just as I go to do it like just something just took over me like this supernatural force is just like no. And I literally turned away and walked back to my room I had the window up I had everything planned, I was going to stab him in the chest run and jump out the window and figure it out from there and. Eventually, you know, he and my mom divorced. I left uh, them and I moved in uh, to live with a white family who later became my guardians, Mm -hmm. the Marr family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, (laughs) I'm just like, but my journey, it's been so much pain and rejection. And as I had gotten older and began working through things, I've understood that the rejection was part of the reshaping and redirecting process. And because it's cliche that, well, God has something better. No, it was that it was a part of the plan in mm-hmm. order for me to become who I am today. So I go to college. I played four years. I have a great career. I go to the NFL and football again. It's, it's my safe haven, man. It's how I'm able to get through. Right. And I'm a free agent. I didn't get after the first year uh, that I come out in draft, I play arena ball, I get my opportunity in the NFL, uh, don't get my contract, and then I go back to arena league. And then after that, um, I attempted suicide because I just felt lost.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, here I am, 23, 24-year-old kid that's trying to figure it out because I no longer had my safe haven. I no longer had my my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, I start kind of figuring out I get engaged and I'm thinking, all right, let me get married. It wasn't my experience? This is you gotta get in therapy, Jay. You gotta get some help. Like you, you're 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 carrying so much pain with your father. And uh, probably were years you late, I started let me ask you this.
0: When somebody has said that to you and said suggested for you to get into therapy, were you receptive of that? And so, yeah, you're right. I do need to get into therapy. Or were
2: you resistant? Of- yeah, I was, I was, I was there. The, the, the one thing about me, I've always been open to having coaching.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I was an athlete. So I was okay with having someone, you know, correct me and having someone kind of give me this space to kind of figure out what was going on. Um, I think I was done playing or I was actually home training, getting ready for camp. And it was until I met this guy from New York. Um, he was an Italian guy. And I remember him telling me, he says, Man, I think you're so gifted as an athlete, man. I, I mean you're talented. But he says, You're more than a football player. And I said, You mean? I was and I looked at him and I had water in my eyes. And I said, Man, I don't know anything else. He's like, You he says, Dude, yeah, you do. You're more than just a football player. you can get that in your head, man. So yeah. he started coming at me. And of course, I bucked back up and I'm like, dude, don't talk to me like that. Yeah. He was like, Jay, the world owes you effing nothing. Like, why are you carrying this chip, on, this chip on your shoulder? Yeah. Let it go. It's over. And I'm telling him and I started crying. I said, man, I don't want it to be over because this is keeping me alive.
3: Yeah.
2: I said, I don't know anything else. He's Jay, you got your degree. Go do some work. I said, man, it don't work that way. I said, because I'm a kid who's on life support from football because if I'm not playing, I'm not living. Yeah. And that was the turning point. And my fiance was just like, at the time, Jay, you got to get some help. Mm-hmm. And when I started seeking help. And if you're watching, if, if anyone has watched Antoine Fisher. My session was exactly similar to: Oh my gosh, that's well, such a powerful movie. Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. I did many papers on that movie when I was in grad school on what was happening and the abandonment, the uh, sexual abuse that he was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And on the third session, I'm, I'm talking, and I remember uh, uh, the therapist said to me, "So um, tell me about football." And tears just started rolling out my face and and I just started opening up and from that day forward, I can remember my mom telling me I said, "Hey, I'm talking to somebody. I'm trying to get some help." And she was like, "Why are you going to tell that man all our business? you know what I mean wow. um, and, and and looking at it now, you know I came from the spiritual religious you know uh, background where you pray about it. Yeah. And I'm him her, I said, "Mama, I need some help because self harm was always my way mm-hmm. to numb the in pain. And anyone, when people are harming themselves, it is it's, it's an antagonist to where I am trying to cause external pain.
3: Yeah.
2: To numb inward pain.
3: hmm
2: And that's what I. And here I am, you know. 20, 22, 23-year-old man, you know, still cutting on myself, Yeah, you know, and so uh, I survived a cutting uh, accident or incident, and I OD'd on the second suicide attempt, so I had so much pain, mm-hmm. and I can remember playing arena ball and just listening to some of the guys in the locker room, man, we all was, we, we were all in so much trouble with ourselves, everybody was trying to get back to the NFL because yeah. the NFL was also
0: our way of being validated that we were good enough in life. And that was like the ultimate goal because you don't That's get that goal. Whole, you don't get that. Not taking anybody, taking anything away from like Canadian league or arena football or anything else, but you don't get that full audience. You don't get the the, the accolades. You don't get all that television time and, you know, media coverage. Uh, of that versus, you know, being in an arena football league and everything else. So from there, when you were in the locker room and you and I talked a little bit about this and I just thought about it the rest of the evening and up to this point, you had said that there was many players that were in that locker room that was just like hurt like you were, that were going through so many things like you were. And, but at that particular time, Jay, you guys have said this versus now, versus now it seems like it is okay for a well-known athlete to talk about they're going through a mental health issue, to talk about they're not okay. And take me back to that moment and to the point where you're just like, okay, I really need to do something about this on my end and and get people the help that they need, continue to heal myself, because we'll talk about uh, your thing, hashtag just heal bro, just heal sis. Um, talk about that whole entire journey because I know uh, you said you bring the energy into that locker room Well, bringing the energy in the locker room is one thing but trying to bring the energy from someone who's like basically dying on the inside and everything going through through and through uh, of the difficulty that they're going through it's completely a whole different spectrum
2: yeah you know Marissa every, every team that I've been a part of immediately I became the vocal leader.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I was 23 when I was playing arena ball, and you know these guys are 27, 28. And uh, you know, even when I was, you know, going to camp, in Bay, I was um, working out with guys that were much older than I was. You know, most probably like anywhere from three to five years old. But and, and and again, going back to God always shows you glimpses of mm-hmm. who you are.
0: Yes, yeah,
2: right. But of course you don't see it. Yeah, These guys always talk to me about such serious issues. I'm talking about brothers with wives and kids and I'm just like, why
3: are you talking Why are you talking I'm to like, me about it? I'm like, going like, through some I'm stuff like, too. <laughs> I'm like,
2: bro, shit. I'm like, I said if you guys, nobody knew how dark my life was outside yeah. of football. Yeah, Because when I stepped in that locker room it was, you know I wouldn't say that I turned on this personality, but I enjoyed the camaraderie of brotherhood and fellowship. Mm-hmm. So it was like, what's up, man? You know, what's up, Todd? You know what I'm saying? What's up, you know, Mike? You know, what what's up, Joe? You know, it was that. And I just because I love the game so much that no matter where these guys were, I always came to them. And after practice, brothers would be like, yo, Jay man, I want to run somebody, bro. Can I come by your place later on, man? I want to talk. To my mom is sick, bro. I don't know what to do. And I'm having all of these different encounters and not knowing. Like, dang, I've been a therapist the entire time and I didn't know it.
0: You've been a therapist actually since your childhood. You, you were yeah. talking about the age of ten, but you yeah, didn't exactly. understand it then. Versus yeah. that, you know, revelation. Now that that whole entire time you had a yeah. calling upon your life. Exactly. I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. Didn't even know it. Hey, mm-hmm. they should have paid me for that
2: session. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! <laughs> um, but what what I realized, Marissa, is that the second su after the second suicide attempt, I I had a conversation, um, with the clinician, and of course they wanted to know why did I attempt, and you know what led me to have this relapse because I I have been doing well, and I just told them that I just felt like. Of nothing was getting better. I just felt like I was in a cycle. And, it, and, it, and if you know anything about depression, it runs in cycles. Mm-hmm. And the depression for me was that I was always in a space where I felt like I was moving, but I wasn't going anywhere.
3: Mm-hmm. If
2: anybody knows what that means, where you're moving, but you look up and you're still where you started. But you know that you're moving,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: nothing is changing around you.
3: Mm-hmm. And for
2: me, I wanted to really find out what's my purpose but I didn't know what I was looking for
3: mm-hmm. and it
2: wasn't until one day I was in the barbershop getting my hair cut because I was after football was over I got into modeling I got into acting I got into stuff that I've always been interested in and now that I, I had the time to do it and I, I was just I had just done a short and it was you know pretty good uh film and my barber says hey Jay Man, dude, have you heard this message by Miles Monroe called The Purpose, uh, the power of vision and purpose? I said, nah. And I said, I'm familiar with him. My dad, you know, growing mm-hmm. up, you know, we listened to, you know, Miles Monroe, Bishop Jakes, uh, you know, the, the uh, Kenny Copeland and the Leo Daniels, C.L. Franklin. So it's like mm-hmm. something was always playing in the house, you know, with uh, with preaching. Right. Yeah. And he says, Jay, you gotta listen to this, bro. He played the message in the barbershop, and I said, bro, I said, I need more of that. I was like an addict. Mm -hmm. I said, I need more of that. And I went home and locked myself in my room, in my house, and I listened to Miles Monroe's sermon on the power of a vision and purpose over and over, like for like probably like two or three days straight. And I started asking God, what is my purpose? And God is, and I remember him speaking to me saying, hey, if you trust me, I will lead you to it. But he said, this back and forth battle that you have it whether you want to live or die, you got to make a decision. And so I, I literally was on my knees crying and I said, all right, I'm going to trust you. And as I began to trust him, he said, I want you to write. I looked up after four days of being locked in my room, I had created a program called the Me Project, which mm. was titled uh, Men of Excellence, mm-hmm. which was a five-week self-development program for boys ages 12 to 18. Mm-hmm. And each week was based on a deficit that I did not have, a deficit that, was, was, that I had within myself, vision, purpose, uh, mental and tough mental toughness and endurance
3: mm-hmm.
2: um i just i didn't understand how to complete something that i had visualized, and so fast forward that began to birth what god was going to do through me he said i want you to build young people i had a training business where i worked with some of the top athletes before the draft i was in houston doing my thing But God says, no, I want you to build these young people. I walked away from my business at the the height of the success of it after five years and started really focusing on my mentoring programs. And that's when I began to write books. But then I realized that my mentoring was also helping me to heal certain parts of me. But Mm. I still had much work to do. And I was working with girls at the time because I was working with boys and girls. I was a a dual threat in the uh, youth development Mm -hmm. because there was not a man around that could work with girls as effectively as he could with boys and i had three contracts with three group homes and two were all girls facilities Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: people were coming around like from the board watching me work with these girls and take them through these emotional recovery program girls have been molested uh part of sex trafficking abuse, runaways and they were just like Man, what, what is this guy doing why are these kids opening up and what they re- and what they saw was these kids saw themselves through me
3: mm-hmm.
2: and i was able to normalize their feelings to release them because what i noticed is that to their social worker, they was just another case.
3: Yeah.
2: But to me, this was a young king and a young queen. So that allowed them to be open. And one day, Black woman, who was the director of the all-girls facility, um, after my eight-week program was over, I did like this little uh, ceremony. And she said, Jay, <laughs> she said, the grown women are asking me if you can do this program for them. They said they felt like you were talking to them when they were in your sessions. Mm -hmm. And she said, have you ever thought about being in the mental health and therapeutic realm? Because she says you're doing the work of a therapist. I said, no. I was like, eh. I said, I don't want to go back to school. (laughs) I said, I enjoy this. I said, I don't want to go back to school. So, So months go by. My mentor says to me, hey, you need to go back to school, man. He I just have this. This is heavy on my heart. You need to go back to school. You need to get some more schooling. So I said, all right, let me pray about it. I prayed about it. And God spoke to me back in 2015. And he said, go to school. Mm-hmm. Something is coming and your voice is going to be needed. That's mm-hmm. all I heard. That's all he said. End of story.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I researched uh, family therapy, research counselors, found a program, found a school where I didn't have to take the GRE. And they uh, did the interview. And in the interview process, the president or whomever, I can't remember uh, who, what their title was, they said, Why do you want to be a therapist? I said, "Ooh, man, that's loaded. I said, As a young Black man who grew up in a household, where when I called my parents and told them that I was taking my life, no one understood the emotions of what I was feeling and no one understood what depression was.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: I was seeking help and answers. They was telling me to pray. So I said, I know many that have crossed over at their hands. And I said, if I can bring healing and help save a life. I said, I would love to do that as a therapist and help the black community because suicide was just beginning to climb amongst black boys during this time back in 2015. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, oh wow, no, we've never had no one. So I get in grad school, the first class general therapy, our family uh, systems. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And from the moment that I entered to grad school, I knew right then that's where I was supposed to be because it brought understanding to what I was dealing with in my family history and my gene pool, how things are passed down genetically, how things are passed down DNA, how environments shape our mental health and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I buried myself for four and a half years and I never uttered anything about mental health or that I was even in grad school. I end up writing two books in grad school. I end up continuing to travel and speak. And the more that I learned about becoming a clinician, the more healing I got within myself. Because if you know anything about being a therapist, there's always work to be done introspectively, looking within your own system, not just family system. And so that could begin my journey. And by this time, because I'd already been in and out of therapy for about five years or about four years at this time when I entered school and that began this healing journey of me being open and vulnerable because I had never been vulnerable
3: hmm.
2: like I was vulnerable like man I'm not telling nobody what I'm going through
3: yeah
2: you know shoot, the girl I was dating when I first attempted suicide walked out of the room and was like hey it's on you so, I'd never been vulnerable with myself because, for one, I was never given that opportunity as a young boy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, I was told, hey, it's your time to be the man of the house. So, there was no time to cry. There was no time to process. There was no time to emote. There, there was no time to feel.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And when we don't have the opportunity to feel, whether male or female, boy or girl, you are creating emotionalist adults. And not because we don't have emotions. We don't understand how to operate and function in our emotions right. a healthy, in a healthy manner. So what we do is we begin to avoid. Mm-hmm. And when you become avoiding, avoiding of something, you become overly obsessive in another area. Mm-hmm. So because I became so obsessed with trying to be successful, trying to get my dad's attention, trying to tell him, okay, I ain't playing ball, but get dad, I just started this. This, this nonprofit with kids. You know, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, uh, I'm telling people, y'all work with teenagers. Oh, that's cute. You know, I'm writing books on becoming a king and queen. Oh, okay, that's cute. And it wasn't until God says, this is not about them. This is mm-hmm. about you. This is about your story. This is about your legacy. This is about your mission.
3: Mm-hmm. And more
2: importantly, this is about the mantle that I placed on you that you are the one and it wasn't until May 2020, well, I saw a shift when Kobe passed. Yeah. That I created this video that got a lot of views about men dealing with the emotion of grief.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Got a lot of views. And I saw a shift of brothers like, man, thank you for that, man. Because you, for the first time, you saw manly men crying mm-hmm. on television about Kobe's passing because Kobe also challenged our mortality that man the black mama's gone Kobe was a lot of our heroes Kobe was the epitome of resilience he yeah. was the the apex of perseverance mm-hmm. and when he left that created a hole in the emotion of men that we could no longer hide or or, or we could no longer ignore that we felt too Mm-hmm. Because for so long, y'all don't feel. Right. The hell been on, you go out here busting dude in his hair. Like you can't be emotional. Now, mm-hmm. if you lose a game, you can cry about it. But outside of that, no, we don't, we, 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 we your, your emotions are not needed here. Right. How I don't,
0: that oh my gosh, that everything that you just said, the, the only question that goes through my mind, Jay, is why the, why is it that young men going into adulthood, why is it, and it just seems like to me that I'm seeing a pattern of this and you, you, you spoke of it as well. It's just like they need permission to be emotional. They need permission to cry. They, 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 they need that, that, ver- that validation of, okay, this happened with an individual that was bullying you, or this happened when you were trying to uh, get a scholarship to get into this college or why is it with young men? See, young women, for me, I got told I was a crybaby all the time because I got emotional about everything. But it seemed like for men, for young, for young boys, when they were, you know, young kids, and then they get to that tween, that teen years, somehow they're told majority of, of them are told, okay, you're going to have to suck it up, buttercup. You can't, you can't show the emotion. You got to show that you're tough. You got to show, you know, you get ready to be a man. But there's telling a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old this. And so they have all of that compressed and buried inside of them until, like you had mentioned, they get into their 20s or 30s or 40s holding all of that and see like they're waiting for that permission to, all right, well, you're 42 years old. This unfortunate thing happened to you. You can cry now. You can show emotion now, when does that cycle end where that young man that is going through such a, a horrible, horrific thing that may have happened in their lifetime, why can't they be allowed to cry? When, when is that permission gonna be given? When are we as guardians, as parents, as educators can look that young man in his eye? eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, in their teens and tell them, let it out. It's okay to let it out. It's okay to cry, it's okay to get emotional.
2: Yeah, I think it would change when our standard and what we say constitutes being a man change. Mm -hmm. I think we have received so many messages on what is a man and what a man does and how a man performs, how a man acts Has been shaped so much about uh, uh, through society, through magazine, through music, through television. When that begins to change, you'll see the individuals begin to shift their perspectives on how they even see men. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of men that I work with, most of them were told not to cry by women. So you look at, okay, where did they get that from? You know, uh, boys don't cry. Suck it up. I ain't raising no punk. I ain't raising no sissy. If you was, you know, raised in the seventies and the eighties, right? Mm-hmm, that right, term, right. You know, uh, we, we don't do no crying around here. And you hear the kid, <laughs> you know, and and he's almost, you know, almost having a panic attack because he's trying to stop natural flow of emotions and tears. And when we begin to shift how we see one another that's going to shift how we create space mm-hmm. for our boys to cry and to be able to say that just because you're crying and this hurts does not make you less than.
3: Yeah,
2: That's why boys need permission. We need permission as men, even as men, to take off our cape. Hey, take the cape off. You don't have to be Superman today. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Take the cape off. I, I know you had a bad day. I know you wanted that promotion. They didn't give it to you. You're deserving of it. It's okay. You're not a failure.
3: Mm-hmm. See,
2: men are judged differently in the world than women. We're judged based on not just how we show up, but what are we able to produce? Yeah. What what what, what are we able to create? Mm-hmm. And so with that, it's a lot of pressure. Because if you're a boy, who have lived in a suppressed state, you're probably operating from a chronic depression syndrome to where you have these cycles of of depression because some days you feel like you can, some days you feel like you can't. Mm-hmm. Some days you feel like a warrior and some days you feel like, you know, a peasant, you know? And you just feel like, man, who am I? Yeah. And one of the things that I think that is so important If God validated his son, how important is it that men validate their boys and sons? When Jesus comes out of the water, not to take folks to church, but I love to connect the dots. When Jesus comes out of the water, when John the Baptist baptized him, the dove descends down on Jesus' shoulder. What does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well Well pleased. pleased. The (laughs) moment that God says that Jesus' journey started, he was able to go because dad had put a stamp of approval on him and said, hey, you are more than enough, you are capable, you have the ability, you have the in, uh, uh, ingenuity, go forth. Boys need that permission to go forward because what it does is not only does it validate them, it reinforces who they are. And as we create spaces for that to be seen
3: mm-hmm. through
2: television, yeah. That's why I'm working on the projects that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And as we allow that to be heard, so we can change how we see. So when you see a, a Black guy who's crying, that's got muscles, and he has this physical presence that he's not just crying because, oh, um, you know, he lost the game. He's crying because he was cheated on. We got to validate that and not say, oh, he's hurt, hurt, Yeah. and not poke fun at him because it's a real thing. Because anytime we do this, it invalidates an, a person experience, especially a man. Because there's a lot of men who have experienced hurt and pain from a woman that they're afraid to talk about. And, and mm-hmm. what they and what men do rather than process, they go and sex it. And I tell, bro, you can't sex it that hurt out.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You gotta deal with the pain. But to deal with the pain means that he's gotta sit with himself. And yeah. he thinks sitting with himself. Is him being invaluable that he's not worthy of love. In fact, sitting with yourself validates that you are worthy of love because you're taking the time to heal rather than continue to go hurt somebody else through your pain.
0: And I think that's so important that households and people and educators and teachers and those that are going to be listening to this need to get that four-letter word back in, which is heal. Uh, Many people do not know how to. Uh, I think that is powerful with your hashtag that you have. Just heal, bro. Just heal, sis. Um, healing needs to be put back into. I think mean, two things. Healing needs to be needs to be restored in so many lives, and once and people need to be. People need to know that they can be accepted to heal. They, they that when they're going through they don't have to stay in the brokenness and they don't have to stay in the broken places and the broken spaces. That it is okay to pick up your brokenness and piece by piece start to heal. When did you start that part of, you know, hashtag just heal bro? Uh, Because I just just think those three words alone, it's just more than a hashtag that you've done. Uh, And that one word, like I said, the four letter word heal. Yeah, we have yeah, to get I, back I, to the healing. Yeah,
2: we, we we have to because I think when George Floyd um, passed, I think that was an awakening for black men as well, mm-hmm. because for the first time, you know, and not to invalidate the other brothers that have lost their lives, you know, with Trayvon Martin. Uh, um, I can't think of these. Uh, Ahmaud
0: Aubrey.
2: Yeah, Ahmad Aubrey, uh, Philando Elijah Panto, McClain. Mm-hmm. You know Elijah and uh all these uh um, a the guy with Eric Gardner, I think that's his name
0: yeah Eric Gardner mm-hmm. yeah,
2: and so uh you know, not that these their deaths were invalidated uh by any you know stretch of imagination, but we got to see George's life leave him right right before our eyes, mm-hmm. and the knee on his neck wasn't just a white man knee on his neck, this is also symbolism to how many of the black men feel just in society altogether. You know, that may not be a man physically with his knee on his neck, but often life can feel like his knee is on your neck if you're limited in opportunities, Mm. if you're limited in your abilities, Mm. if you were a great high school standout and you never got that opportunity. If you started out on the right track and somewhere, you know, you lost your way and you ended up in prison, you know, over a joint and having 10 to 15 years. And so it's so many things that it represented for, for brothers. And what brothers have done a, a a poor job in doing is avoiding responsibility of what we have to do within ourselves. And that's taking a look within the mirror. Mm-hmm. And to their defense no one has advocated for black men and here's what i mean by that um, when you look at society even when you look at certain initiatives there were no initiatives on how to push black boys forward right um you would often hear this even in the household girl you better go to college don't depend on no man you know they you know you know your daddy ain't about nothing so when you hear these things you often look around as a young black boy because I did it, and you like, well, what about us? Mm-hmm. And so they push the young girl to go to college. I think a lot of black boys were baby. Um, they were enabled. And because mom needed to have a man around the house, and this sort of validated her in a sense. Yeah. That's a whole nother topic. But you had all of these different dynamics and these moving parts that excuse black men's behavior Mm -hmm. and i never had to look within myself that okay because if 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 you hustling and you bringing money in the house and keeping these lights on good job son he Mm -hmm. felt validated if you rapping and you doing a few shows you got a chain the chain solidifies that you are valuable you are somebody of likening you know this was your pat on the back if you could jump if you can catch a ball you can run hey great job and what happened marissa is that all of these things that these black boys were pushing for were not making them whole it was just a substitute of what they would later be exploited by
0: mm, wow wow
2: because unresolved issues Unresolved trauma, un, undisclosed experiences through sexual molestation, sexual abuse, all of these different things will come out when they got to their desired outcome. Mm-hmm. You got to the lead, but hey, he just beat on his girlfriend, right? You know, mm-hmm. you got the record deal, but you're still in the streets. Now he's dead. So all of these different things is is, is not by happenstance, because it doesn't matter that you get to the place. What matters is who are you when you arrive? Yeah. Because if you bring your trauma, if you bring all of your stuff that you never have to dealt with, your brain is going to remind you through your behavior that you are still the same person.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now you may have a little more money, but that molestation ain't going nowhere. Mm -hmm. So now, in order to get that out of the back of your mind, you have more women. You smoke more weed. You drink more alcohol. So rather than healing, you do a bunch of deflecting. And that's where we are today. And that's when I realized that, okay, God, now this is what you meant when you said 2015 something was coming because it was going to take somebody like myself who, former athlete, still masculine present, but able to be vulnerable because brothers respect athletes. Brothers respect men that they can follow, mm-hmm. right? And so now it makes sense to where God took me on this journey and treated me like a Joseph. I was cast out you know, by my, my dad and rejected often by my family. And now he who rejected has now been sent to heal. So now it makes sense. Yeah. Because purpose never makes sense when you're in the process of purpose being developed. And oftentimes the promise can't be obtained until Mm -hmm. you have gone through the process. And so the promise is that God said, no, I'm going to use your voice, your story. I'm going to use you as a vessel so brothers can have an example of what healing looks like. Mm-hmm. Because just as Jordan needed to see Dr. J jump from the free throw line so he could do it, brothers need to see brothers healing the, at, at, at the same.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I like that you have that. Oof. I've been, listen, I've been <laughs> writing notes. I will be listening to all this again. And I encourage everybody to say, because, Jay, you definitely are going there. About healing, about validation of self, and you, you know, and the process and the progress of, of all of that. And take me now to where you're doing the work, you're doing the mentorship. You are, you know, you have these young men that you mentor. And again, those that you know, have him drop it at the end of the show of his social handles, his social media handles, we can follow him. But most important, most especially on IG, uh, where you could see some amazing, powerful clips of video of his mentorship and his leadership um, in the books that you have. And I like that you have a journal too, because I wish that I was introduced to writing and journaling back then. I do so much of it now um and started doing uh some writing and journaling you know in my late 30s and then now into my 40s but I found it to be where once I was releasing those words on the paper of how I was feeling that particular day or you know the week I had or um just all my emotions there on paper and I found several of my journals where I have gone back and I looked at and I'm like girl you have grown big time (laughs) from where
2: you were that's 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 why I like journaling, man. Yes. Yeah. It it will show you like woo.
0: <laughs> You I, mean, I, I would go up like, "Man, 2017, I was like this." Whoa, but 2019 I was able to find myself. And yeah. in 2020, oh my gosh, we we just shut it down and then 2021, okay, here comes the comeback. Here comes the growth. Why do you feel it? And, and I I'm definitely going to check out uh, some of your books and and that journal for sure because you and I have talked about that and want uh, some of these amazing materials in the hands of you know, my nephews and, 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 and for them to see that they are of value and that writing uh, can bring healing, can bring restoration to one's soul. Um, when you were doing your writing and everything, um, and I'll go back to when you said you were writing your first book, do you go back and you look at your books and you look at what you have created and you know you look at your um, you, the, the materials and, and any, anything that you have released videos and so forth. Do You go back and you look at those things and you know reeducate yourself. You being now in your thirties, oh, <laughs> you know. Oh. And do you see? Do you see hints of you know your thirteen year old self in oh, the things yes. that you wrote? Yeah,
2: yeah. Because uh, Marissa, I was a very dark writer. Mm. Uh, if I, if you go look at anything that I wrote in college because I started journaling in college all of my writings were, were dark
3: mm.
2: uh, I became very fascinated with the book of Ecclesiastic in a very very uh, unhealthy way and I came across studying Solomon's um, discussion on vanity mm. and his discussion that no matter rich no matter poor we were all headed toward the same fate and I became so obsessed with Solomon and so obsessed with Ecclesiastic that I started to write it about death because, and this is why I, I really became infatuated with suicide because I'm just like, well, here Solomon is talking about, he's had everything, he's had all the success, he's had all the money, he's had all the, the, the women that he can have and there's nothing more to life than these uh, quote-unquote that these things that they tell us that is going to be you know this is going to be the fixer the summation that this is where you want to get to yeah and he says well we're still going to just die and so all of my writing was just like forget those things because I wasn't playing football for the money I was playing because it was my my uh, life raft and I wasn't into you know women like to where wanting to be uh, promiscuous. I was always into having one girl that you know I was dating, so that wasn't it. So I was like, "You know what? this death thing is kind of interesting. So everything I wrote about was always about uh, going to the other side, uh, escaping pain, mm-hmm. escaping my reality. Um, I, I lived in this imagination world where. I couldn't feel. I mean, there were times where I would go to practice and coach would be like, where are you today? And I would be in a whole nother place. I would be present at practice because mm-hmm. I knew plays and I was able to get through practice, but he was just like, JJ. And I could several times, JJ, snap out of him. And I would literally be thinking about, I can't wait to get back home and start back writing because as much as I had this fascination with death, I also had this... Uh, space to just share my thoughts
3: mm-hmm.
2: and now when I go back and look at it and I'm just like oh my god yeah. <laughs> oh my god I'm like dude you had some stuff going on in mm-hmm. you I'm talking about oh my I I mean and I have books of books of journals mm-hmm. because I would just write and write I would be up to two or three o'clock in the morning On a school night and especially because I live and and probably the best thing the worst thing that I could have ever decided to do is live by myself in college Mm. and because I would retreat and go in that house and I wouldn't come out until it was time to go to class I wasn't somebody who partied or did anything like that I think it was not a good when I look back on it, it was not a good idea because I would just sit in the corner and just cry
3: Mm-hmm. I hated
2: when practice was over. I hated when I remember this, my senior year, my last football game. I was not ready to go to the draft. I was not ready because I, I mean it was just my my place where I just felt safe.
3: Yeah.
2: I went in, I played four years. I was a true freshman, so I didn't have a red shirt year. I went in and I asked the office lady Cheryl, who was a huge fan of mine. Cheryl was responsible for getting my jersey retired at the university before she passed. And I said, Cheryl, I I said, am I able to use a red shirt year? She looked at me. She says, JJ, as much as I love you, you you're probably one of the finest players that's come through this university. She said, baby, it's over. You got to move on. Mm. And I cried because Marissa, like, I wasn't ready.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I wasn't ready. And um, and I went home and wrote about that. And I just and Cheryl was, you know, uh, was such a sweet lady. Um, Her transition was very horrific. And and I just remember her telling me, you know, J.J., you're going to be fine. You're going to do well. She would always tell me whether you stick with football or not, you're going to do well. You're a beautiful person. You know, everybody always talked about the talks that I gave before football games, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just wasn't ready. And, you know, for me, stepping into the world also meant that I had to step. uh, I had to face the things that I was that I were hiding from because, Mm -hmm. you know, I held that anger and and animosity toward my dad for years, you know, and I wasn't I wasn't ready to let that go because I used it for fuel you know, that was how I was able to get through. I got through college because I'm like, I'm gonna show him, you know, because yeah. I was the first to graduate college out of my family. Mm-hmm. Everything was built on anger. And what I learned that anger is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Rage is not. I think, you know, I believe there's a such thing as holy rage that God allows us to have, because you can build from those things. You just can't reside there.
3: Right.
2: You can build some great things out of anger, out of frustration you know, out of uh, of rage, but you just can't reside there. And I was trying to reside there because I'm like, no, I need this. I need this. I need to hate him. You know, this is going to push me through my workouts. I need to resent him. This is going to push me through life. And I got to a point when I was in therapy that I understand that these are tools that you use, but these tools are not sustainable, Jay. Mm. They won't sustain you. And so when I go back and I look at my journal and to see where I'm at today, I am just humbled. Because, you know, I've lost quite a few people to suicide. Mm -hmm. And just to know that, wow, you know, my God, you really had a purpose for me. And I'm glad that he allowed me to not just survive it, but to live beyond it. Mm-hmm. Because I can now talk to other people who's, who I've had to work with in my practice that struggle with suicide ideation is to help them to understand is that I know you may feel suicide as an answer, but you don't know who you're killing. And just to think, had I succeeded in taking my life, who, who and what people see today would not exist? And so... I'm like, man, you don't know what's on the other side of tomorrow.
3: Yeah,
2: I've talked many people off the ledge and my question to them is always who do you think you're going to become on the other side after this happens? And they've never had an answer because you don't know. Mm -hmm. So I always say to them, what if you just give tomorrow a try? and it shifts something in them because now it forces them to change their perspective about tomorrow and not just holding on to the feeling of today.
0: Flip other side of paper and just continue. That is, woo, That, that, and that's, that's, perfectly summed up the reason why i've kept all my journals is yeah. it's 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 a it's me reminding myself of yeah. where i was at a time in my life uh, a, a terrible time or happy time or whatever time it was to compare to now and i'm like oh god you have brought me through a yeah. mighty a mighty a mighty way you have so many uh things that you've got going on. And like you and I have talked about compartmentalizing so many things you, you know, your therapy, you're a motivational speaker, you're an author, you're an actor. So what is the projects that you are currently working on, sir, that we need to get excited uh, and support you on?
2: So um, let's see where I want to start. Uh, the Netflix film, which now um, will be on Amazon releases um with march 2022 and it is a story where i play an attorney Mm -hmm. and it is called ready to love i mean not ready to love keep on loving i'm sorry keep on loving and it's a story about three couples who go through different challenges uh my character uh becomes divorced after my wife uh, had an affair Mm -hmm. but same as with, with with me when uh the divorce happens my character divorces his child and so the daughter begins to cry out and my character throws money at his daughter but that's not what she's wanting she's really wanting her father's attention mm-hmm. so it was a very powerful role it was a role that you know um I really had to tap into the emotions of where I was mm-hmm. and the young lady that plays my daughter uh did a phenomenal job so I'm excited to see that a project you know I would have had so. a
0: therapist on set because that that role sounds Man, it was deep. Fun.
2: Oh <laughs> it is so it is so deep. So uh that's that I I had a project that we, we worked on with Tina Knowles uh through Own that releases in February Defying Black which is a story about my story uh documentary so we're excited about that and Jess Hill Sis comes out in 2022. So those are the projects that I'm working on, and uh, so if you know me, I'm always ahead of, uh, of, of ahead of my time and what's to come. So I'm just blessed for the opportunity to share on your platform. Uh, thank uh, Alex for connecting us because yes. uh, this is
0: shout yeah, out to Alex Bryant. Yes, yes,
2: yeah, I love Alex, amazing brother. You know, one of the things that I, I love that I, I do so many different interviews and podcasts I always pick and choose, and I always, I'm, 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 I'm spirit-led on a lot of things that I do, and so, um, you know, I, this was something that, because I, I, I've shared things on here that I've never shared publicly, so it's just exciting that each time that I share, you know, it, it also heals another part of me, mm-hmm. because I, I truly believe that healing is a journey, and wholeness is a destination, and so, uh, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. And, and one last question that I wanna ask you uh, because I believe in, some, in affirmations, I believe in uh, mantras. Um, what is a mantra of yours that uh, resonates with you that either you have came up with, you know, that God imparted into you or that somebody said to you, that you carry on through, you know, all of your sessions that you do, all your mentorships oh, yeah. that you do. Uh, what, what is that mantra? What is that uh, it oh, could that's be a quote easy. that you have?
2: That's easy. The great Miles Monroe. The great Miles Monroe. Life is not about what you get, but it is about who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? And I live by that. Because each day that I'm here, becoming has become it's just it's it's a part of what I do that who I am today is so much better than who I was yesterday so that's the beauty of life is that I get to continue to become you know continue to uh you know experience new levels new dimensions you know one of the things that I've had to tell people often even as I've embarked on much success over the past year then is the face of mental health for black men and as being a black therapist and so on and so forth. And, you know, people always says, well, new levels, new devils. I said, well, new levels also means new angels being released for this level. So, and I use that, that way, I don't have to have this imposter syndrome or self-sabotage this new space that I'm in, because we could do that at times, Mm -hmm. because there can be a fear that we associate with new dimensions of life. Mm -hmm. And, I've moved in the space of worthiness, that I am worthy of the good, even the bad that happens. I am worthy of the bad being used for good. So, and that's a part of the becoming process. And who do you, you know, choosing who you get to become is, 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 is beautiful it's, it's because it's, it's, on, it's, it's you. You yes. get to decide.
0: Mm-hmm. So. That is so good. Listen, I want people that are watching and that are listening to stay connected with you. I want them, I know you have a website. I know you have some amazing materials that you have. Uh, Share with everybody how they can stay connected with you.
2: Yes, so you can stay connected to me on Uh, j-barnett.com. Webuildprojects.org, which is my nonprofit foundation where we go into the schools and we have mentoring programs for boys and girls So we sort of have been out of commission the past two years because of the pandemic. But um, I created my virtual online counseling and coaching platform a year ago, which is KJB Coaching, where I do individual, I do corporate, I do group. So it's counseling and coaching, which no therapist can say they're, you know, practicing therapy virtually, you know, especially if you're out of uh, uh, over the state lines. But yeah, you can stay connected to me there, kjbcoaching.com. And my social media is the same on all platforms, King J. Barnett.
0: It is an honor to sit before you, King, of everything that you had. Thank you. Of everything that you had shared uh, today is definitely, I know, that is going to help someone today, uh, whether they are a young man, a young woman, an older woman, an older man, anybody, all levels, all ages we can heal together. Healing does not discriminate age, uh, race, person, uh, their gender, their height, their weight. uh, That four letter word, that just needs to be brought back into someone's life, someone's home. Um, Doesn't matter where they are, and that's the word heal. Yes, absolutely. I I appreciate you so much for sharing so, so many things, so many gems on today's podcast. Jay Barnett, thank you very, very much.
2: Yes, thank you, Marissa.
0: You are very welcome. Thank you so much Heard that nation for listening today. And as I always, always end the show, be kind to one another, take care and stay safe. We out of here. Be in the know of new episodes that are coming up on the podcast at HeardThatWithMarisa.com. I'm also available on Instagram at Marisa Tigney podcast, on Twitter at LovelyMarisaT, as well as Facebook on a social media page, Heard That With Marisa Tigney. I appreciate your continued support.
1: Everything she says is truth. That, if you don't know, now you know. All you ever gotta say is, Look, all you ever gotta say is. Heard that.